But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. One of the exercises we used to do with young soldiers was to take them to improve their map reading with a map in a helicopter without telling where they're going and dump them on a hill with only a compass. And uh, when I say improve their map reading, I'm not sure it was always successful, but one, one of the keys to working out where you are and where you are going then, of course, was true north and one or two key fixed points which gave you proper bearings. Well, our subject over these few weeks is the resurrection of the dead. We are talking a lot about the resurrection of Jesus, but I don't think Paul's primary emphasis is on the resurrection of Jesus. It's on the resurrection of the dead, and we'll come back to that big time next week and the week after. But the resurrection of Jesus and what it means for the universe, and for particularly you and me, his followers, what the resurrection of Jesus means is that we have a true north because there is a resurrection from the dead, and that's where we're heading. No doubt there will be people looking into the Christian faith this, this, this morning, and if that's you, well, now that helps you to ask the question, well, what governs my decision-making in my life? What is, if you like, is my true north? And one would want to ask, you know, what credentials does that have? The credentials of the true north of the Christian is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Perhaps the key verse for this morning is there in verse 22, each in his own, 
verse 22, sorry, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. And perhaps the counter to that is there in verse 34, some have no knowledge of God. And Paul's concern for his readers is that they've forgotten the key aspects of the Christian faith. They have no knowledge of God, and therefore, if you like, they're like a cork on the incoming tide, just bobbing about with no clear direction. They don't know where they're going, no fixed point. So Paul begins with a brief history of everything, verses 20 through 28. The logic is extraordinarily tight. Not for nothing was Paul the foremost lawyer of his day. And you will see there are four fours. One in verse 21, for as by man came death. One in verse 22, for as in Adam all die. One in 25, for he must reign and he did put all enemies under his feet. One in 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Having been through the logic of a brief history of everything, and it really is a brief history of everything, Paul then concludes with the most important decisions of life. What makes a worthwhile decision in the light of the brief history of everything? So that's where we're going to go. Uh, Paul's aim is that we recognize just how the resurrection of the dead impacts all key decisions for the Christian person. Let's begin then with the resurrection of the dead and the brief history of everything, verses 20 through 28. We'll follow the four different sections that I've just outlined for us. Verse 20 to 21, the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. And Paul's point here is we now live in, if you like, uh, the first fruits of this age of the resurrection. It's begun already with the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. The language is of first fruits. We're all familiar with that. The first swallow of summer, the first ripe raspberry, the first new potato. We were on holiday in Singapore. Not on holiday, we were working in Singapore. Don't tell them that, otherwise I'll make it worse even harder. We were, we were working in Singapore a number of years ago. They very kindly, our host, put us into a hotel. There was an appalling smell, something between, a cross between a sewers and rotten flesh in the lobby. And I went down and my wife came down. We were thinking we were about to go to the management to complain. And then we noticed first durian is in. Uh, those of you from an Asian background will understand that. Maybe you don't like the rotting flesh idea, but that's what it seemed like to me. The first fruits. With the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection has begun. We have the first fruits. He's here. He's raised. He's conquered death. The first fruits have begun. The harvest is to come. We live in the resurrection age. I wonder if you realize that. Life is available. Eternal life. Resurrection life in the Lord Jesus Christ. 22 through 24, well, we need more details. Hang on a second. People aren't popping out of their graves all the time, so what's going on? If you say we're living in the resurrection age, give us some more uh, detail. Verse 22 through 24, the resurrection from the dead and the reign of Christ. And here we have something of a timeline. I don't think Paul is talking about the resurrection of all people at the end of time to judgment, though he may well be referring to that. He's referring particularly within the subset to Christians as we will be raised. 
So verse 22, for as in Adam all die. So you're born a human being, you're born in Adam, you're one of the descendants of Adam, death reigns. You don't believe that? Just keep breathing. Ah, till you don't. Death reigns for everybody in Adam, the reign of death. So also in Christ shall all his people be made alive. Now all people will be brought alive by Christ to judgment, but I think he's talking here particularly about a subset, Christian people will be resurrected. Each, here's the timeline, in his own order. Christ the first fruits, he's come. Then at his coming, when he returns, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power that stands against God. So Christ has been raised. Christ will come again. When he returns, all who are in Christ, who belong to Christ, will be raised. There are just two classes of humanity. The dead and those in Christ. Those in Adam and those who now have this spiritual life planted within them. And then at the return of Christ, why? Those in Christ, they will rise. I, I, I love, when I'm reading the Bible one-to-one -one with a young believer, I'll often bring them down here and walk them round all the memorials that there are. Here's Sir Thomas Gresham over there, Julius Caesar, not that one, a different one, just round the corner here, Earl Spencer over here. And some of them talk about the resurrection from the dead, as I mentioned last week, and I'll say that will be you one day when you put your trust in Jesus. You will rise from the grave in Jesus. There is the resurrection of the dead. Then comes the end when he, that's Christ, delivers the kingdom of all his living people, that is, those who believed him, to God the Father after he has destroyed every rule and every power and every authority that is set up in proud arrogance against Jesus. It will all be destroyed. And he will then deliver all of his resurrection people to God the Father for eternity. It's just glorious even to think about for a second or two, isn't it? I mean, school prize day, you know what school prize day, you know, at the end of the year, there's been one brilliant scholar who sickeningly happens also to be an outstanding athlete and really, really annoyingly is also delightful, responsible, popular, mature, and individual, and popular and mature, and he's won every single prize. Here is the Lord Jesus at the end of time. Every prize is his. He has conquered and then he delivers all of his resurrection people bought out of the age of death in which we all live to God the Father. And then as if by way of uh, a reassertion there in 25 and 26, he, Paul, turns to death itself. So verses 21 and 22, 20 and 21, the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22 to 24, the resurrection of the dead and the reign of Christ. 25 to 26, the reign of Christ and the destruction of death. Death will be destroyed. It will be brought to an end. Uh, that victory that Jesus won on the cross that was evidenced in the resurrection is the mortal blow to death itself. 
And at his return, this dead age and death will be put down forever. Praise God. The whole Bible speaks of this. Genesis 3, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Isaiah 26, 25, 26, the shroud that covers all humanity. The entire ministry of Jesus from start to finish. I am the resurrection and the life. Revelation chapter 21, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. The whole Bible speaks of this. And at the end, as he delivers his living people, that's you if you believe in Jesus, to his heavenly father, Death will be over and done with forever. And the new age, which has begun already, will be consummated. And then verses 27 to 28. Verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that God is accepted who put all things in subjection under Jesus. For when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be also subjected to God, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now, these verses are complex. Um, There are discussions about them but they essentially speak of what will happen at the moment when Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, delivers the kingdom to his Father with death destroyed once and for all. And my personal view is that he himself, at that point, in his role as the eternal Son, will be subjected to his Father. This will leave the eternal Son no less divine, no less equal to God, no less eternally the Son. Equality of status is not compromised by diversity of role, even in the new creation. Otherwise, how could there be hierarchy happily? The Son, in his role as eternal Son, brings his whole kingdom to the heavenly Father and He subjects himself even to the rule of the Father whilst remaining equally God, eternally God, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from God, light, and true God from true God. Which means then everybody in all eternity can see that you can be equal with one another but have different roles, just as the Father and the Son are totally equal, one being yet with different roles. But the key, if you missed that, is there in the last line, God may be all in all, which is precisely what we long for, an end to backbiting, an end to infighting, an end to warmongering. There will be peace. Everything will be surrendered to God the Father for all eternity. And this is not Paul just going off on one. He quotes from Psalm 110, as you notice, which is why we had it read, a climactic psalm in the Psalter, referring to God's king and to his eternal rule and everything being subjected to him. This is what the whole Bible has been about, an end to the rebellion of Genesis 3. And at last, peace. And swords beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks and Every boot of tramping warrior, every garment rolled in blood, burned as fuel for the fire, as the whole of this new age 
bows before Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's, it's a glorious, brief history of everything. That's where we're headed. Isn't it wonderful? No more of the silly nonsense that's been going on in Westminster. No more wars and rumors of war. No more death. Everything recognizing one God and Father, one Son, one Holy Spirit. A couple of observations. Notice how totally binary this is. In this broken world, following the rebellion of humanity, there's only, well, one kind of humanity apart from the humanity in Jesus. Dead humanity. A friend of mine uh, put it like this. I took my life into my own hands, if I may put it like this. Always take your life into your own hands if you mess with the flower arrangements in any church. So I snuck around the very back of the flower arrangement and I pulled out a flower earlier this morning. And I'm hoping Wendy isn't noticing or Eileen isn't noticing this. Did you notice I picked it out? Now you see, from the moment you're born, you're like this cut flower, dead. A friend of mine puts it like this. From the day of your birth, you'll oh, well, one or two of you blossom and smell nice for a while. You might even look pretty. But from the moment of your birth, you're born in Adam, you are dying. All of humanity. You don't believe it? Just go on breathing. Every single one of us, a cut flower, death reigns from Adam. You are dying from Adam. This whole age is an age governed by death from Adam. It's totally binary. There are only two ways to live. Either you're in Christ, in which case you're a dead person with life planted within you, or you're just dead. It's profoundly simple, isn't it, actually? I mean, they're profoundly complex ideas here, but it's extraordinarily simple. You know, simplicity brings clarity. You are the mathematicians. This is a brief history of everything. It's all here. Everything you need to know about, it's all here. You're either dead or you're alive. And if you're alive, you're going to God the Father in eternity in this new resurrection age. Notice what isn't mentioned. And this may be rather galling to one or two of us. You know, there's no 1066. Sorry, I'm using the English, you know, 11-year-old um, uh, uh, history books. Okay, what I can remember of them. There's no 1066. There's no King John and the Barons. No Magna Carta. There's, there's no Tudor kings and queens. There's no Reformation, no Industrial Revolution, no Victoriana, no Elizabethan age, no democracy, no modern science. None of it. It's just completely irrelevant, it seems. Because it's all dead. It's as if all the achievements of humanity are so much flim-flam and flotsam floating on the incoming tide of death. What relevance is the splitting of the atom? You're going to die. What significance is the microchip? You're in Adam. What importance is the title that a mere human gave you? You're dead. You won't take it to your grave. Oh, there's only one aspect of significance. It's the resurrection of Jesus. And the resurrection of Jesus guarantees the resurrection of the dead. And the resurrection of the dead will bring in the kingdom of God. And the reign of Christ ensures the defeat of death. And the final defeat of death is the end of the age. And only those who are in Christ and have life will be part of that new age when that age is delivered. And everything else, as far as Paul is concerned, is a complete irrelevance. 
and so how centered on the achievements of Jesus, on his death, his resurrection, his return, his willing, joyful surrender, having achieved all that, for God the Son, having done all that, then continuing in humility in the new creation. Can you think of that? How beautiful it is. As God the Son, having defeated death, then willingly lays his kingdom at the feet of the Father so that God may be all in all. Won't it be glorious to be in the new creation if that is what governs? So with that fixed point, and we're near the end now, so don't despair. With that fixed point in, anyway, you're dying, so anyway. With that point fixed for us, let's have a look at just three worthwhile decisions in life. What are three worthwhile things to do with your life, key decisions? And the first one, well, I know some of you old, uh, old sweats, if I may call you that, are thinking, ooh, well, what does verse 30, 29 mean? What's he going to make with that? Let's turn to verse 29. I think it could be a lot more simple than we think. It's just a suggestion. It's my suggestion. You think about it for yourself. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? It seems to me that to make sense of this first point, we need to make sense of baptism. Baptism is simply a picture. It's a symbol. It's a visible physical representation of an invisible spiritual reality. So we've had a baptism today. Sancha, Ariana, and Alfie, just wonderful to have, uh, have that great, great day. But the point of baptism is death symbolized and life symbolized. And so I take it that Phil plunged these three individuals down into the water, and, and I hope he held them there for quite a while. I was trying to hold them there for as long as I did till the bubbles start coming up, because I think we're symbolizing death. This dead body of theirs, which is gonna die anyway after 70 or 80 years, in Christ, this dead body is now dead plunged under the water, dead. Sancha, Ariana, oh, they will head it off, I guess, Alfie. Uh, Sancha will be here. You're dead. You're going to die anyway, but in Christ, you've actually, that whole body of yours has been put to death. That's what your baptism symbolizes. And being raised up to new life, you have the life of Christ. You're part of the new age. You'll be with Christ when he returns and he presents his kingdom to his heavenly father. So with that in mind, verse 29, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? The Greek fathers, who were very, very, very long time ago Greek Christian leaders in the early centuries of the church, believed that this referred to the baptism of ordinary believers, every believer, and to their dead body being symbolized as dead now, if that is right, I think what Paul is doing here, and if this were some eccentric, weird, and totally off practice, surely Paul would correct it. Baptism meant a lot to the Corinthians, chapters 1 to 3. With that in mind, could it be that Paul is simply saying, well, why did you bother getting converted and baptized if there is no resurrection from the dead? That's what it's all about. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead body, if the dead 
are not raised at all, why are people baptized on behalf of their dead body? That's how you would read it if you were a Greek father. If you want more on that, there's a very helpful commentary by a guy called David Gartland, and he spends a few pages explaining that view. But you see what Paul is saying? If in the brief history of time, you're either dead or alive in Christ, baptism symbols conversion. Well, if there is no resurrection from the dead, why did you bother getting converted in the first place? And by the way, if you're not a Christian, isn't it worth getting converted, turning to Christ? If you would allow me to address you personally, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, it's always wonderful to have people exploring the Christian faith here on a Sunday. What shapes your decisions? What is your true north? What is the only decision that matters? What's the most pressing and important decision of your life? Oh, your career? No, 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 you're going to die. That's part of the kingdom of death. Your, your family? Well, actually, they're all going to die. That's part of the kingdom of death. Does your true north deal with death? If not, it's not worth the paper it's written on, the principles by which you govern your life. Uh, uh, do they deal with death? I mean, if they don't, tear them up. But if you turn to Jesus, why, your baptism, life is implanted within you. You rise to new life. You're part of the age to come. The most important decision of all. Then Paul turns to himself, and he's often done this in the letter. He refers to himself a huge amount. We're not supposed to talk about ourselves, are we, in polite company? But Paul seems to do it a lot by way of example. Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? The whole of Paul's life now, governed by the resurrection age, could be summarized as a whole procession to death. He's given himself this body which is dying anyway. He's given himself this body which is dying anyway in the age of death to the resurrection age. And so get converted, number one, to die for Christ as Paul did. Makes sense of his life, doesn't it? You've got three chapters, chapter 8 through 10, which talk about this endlessly. Paul gave himself to others. He died to self. He took up his cross daily. I die every day, he says. He took up his cross. He followed Jesus in the resurrection age. This makes sense of every decision you might take as a decision that is selfless and sacrificial. Every decision, it's worth it because of the resurrection age. I look around at this room. There are so many people here who've taken big life decisions to follow Jesus, to die every day, to give themselves to Christ because we're living for the resurrection age. The world will think you're mad, but the world is dying. It just hasn't woken up enough, opened its eyes to realize it's dying. But when the resurrection age comes, then every decision you've taken will be vindicated. And then finally, a godly life. Do not be deceived. Sorry, verse uh, 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and be, be merry. Or let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. So wake up, Corinthians. You've forgotten the resurrection from the dead. 
You've forgotten that you're going places. You've taken your eyes off the true north, as it were. And the moment you do that, you will live for this decaying age, collecting silly little corks bobbing on the flim-flam flotsam of this age. You'll be passionate about getting richer and improving your career and all these other things rather than living for Christ and for Christ alone. Let me lead us in prayer. But Christ has indeed been raised, the first fruits. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, that at the cross he defeated death, and in his resurrection he evidenced it. Thank you that he will return. Thank you for his extraordinary eternal humility. Thank you, our Father, for the reign of Christ, that death will be defeated. I pray that you would enable us, as we think about big decisions, little decisions, to live as if we really believe it. In Jesus' name, amen.